Hey, this is Pastor Adam of Faith Methodist Church. We're so glad to have you listening to our podcast the sermon this morning, uh, taken from the prophet Jeremiah and the Gospel of Luke is simply put, Jesus died to make you holy. Enjoy and embrace his offering of grace. I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah chapter 31 and then also to the New Testament Gospel, Luke chapter 22. The word of the Lord from the prophet Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The word of the Lord from the Gospel of Luke. When the hour came, Jesus reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Father, we pray, thanking you for your holy word and asking that you would bless the reading of it to our hearts, to our minds, to the totality of our lives, Lord, we pray. Holy Spirit, move among us, help us, challenge us, 
Speak to us. Change us, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Bill knows my favorite line from the movie Cool Hand Luke. What we have here is a failure to communicate. It seems that in the church we have gotten ourselves into a condition of failure in communication. Because the most fundamental question that the Scriptures are concerned with and the most fundamental question that I think the church has for 2,000 years been concerned with is what is the Gospel? What is the nature of the Gospel? What is the end toward which this good news is calling us? If you ask most people what is the Gospel, you'll hear something along these lines. You are a sinner, but God is holy. Jesus came, lived a sinless life, and died in your place. And by faith in Him, you can then go to heaven when you die. You're still a sinner, and you always will be. That'll, of course, change when you die, it seems. That's the gospel in a nutshell to most people who call themselves Christian. The problem with that gospel is that that gospel is very, very hard to find in the Scriptures. What the Scriptures declare to us is, in a nutshell, this. God made you in His image. And that means He made you to know Him and to love Him. He made you to be known by Him and to be loved by Him. You are the object of His affection. And His desire is that you would also become the subject of affection toward Him. He desires a reciprocal relationship with you. Sin is a reality. It has damaged that image. It has broken us. We enter into this world because of sin, dead in sins and trespasses. It has corrupted us to our very core, and it leaves us isolated from God. It severs relationships. God, however, has graciously pursued you. He has sought you out, every last one of us, to redeem us, to put life back together, to restore His image in us. Jesus came, lived a sinless life, and died to set you free. And as He lives in your heart by faith, He is at work restoring you. The Scriptures call it being conformed to the image of Christ. That is what He is at work in our lives doing as we trust Him by faith. He is making you holy through His Holy Spirit who lives in you. See, the Spirit is not just the Spirit who is holy. He is also the Spirit who makes holy. Where He resides, He clings. Heaven, then, is icing on the cake. But it's not even the finale. We often think that that's what the book of Revelation is all about. It's about heaven. It's about getting to eternity with God and that's where we'll be forever. But if you read the last couple of chapters of Revelation, that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is God's kingdom coming here on earth. 
The resurrection of our bodies. The life then everlasting. A new heaven and a new earth. You see, you've been misled. We've all been misled. Up until just the last century, it was commonly understood that the goal of Christian faith was to make men and women holy. For 1900 years, this has been the understanding of the church. That if the gospel is doing anything in our lives, it is conforming us to Christ. It is making us holy. Even if that's proved impossible by by our circumstances or or by our own experience of the gospel. Even if we think, well, that's that is an ideal that we'll never attain in this life. For 1900 years the church understood that that is the goal of Christian faith is holy men and women. Hearts that are being transformed. Lives that are being put back together. But today it's commonly misunderstood that the goal of Christianity is to get unholy men and women into heaven when they die. Dr. Oswald, my Old Testament professor in seminary and author of books that some of you have read and are on some of your shelves, he commonly says, we want to live like hell, but get into heaven. That's the miscommunication that we have in the church today. That the gospel is just about what happens to me when I breathe my last breath. That it's not about breathing in the breath of God in this life and breathing it out in surrendered trust and praise and obedience. And this is a shame. It's a shame because this is not the gospel. The gospel that we hear preached in most pulpits in America is not, in fact, the gospel. In fact, it's it's something that aborts the full work of the gospel in our lives. The gospel is the good news of the kingdom of God. It is the good news that His kingdom is already at work in us, in our lives, in the church. That it's at work within us, that it's at work among us, and that it's it's at, at work in the world through us. As our lives are being put back together. If His kingdom is anything, it is holy. That word holy, is a, it's an unusual word which is kind of telling and also helpful to us to recognize the unusual nature of the word holy. It's not uncommon in the Scriptures, however. Some 825 times throughout the Bible, the word holy or one of its Offsprings, holiness, sanctuary, which is a holy place. 825 times some form of the word holy is used in your Bibles. That's 607 times in the Old Testament and 218 times in the New Testament. And before you say, hey, wait a minute, so God is more concerned about holiness in the Old Testament than in the New, than in the New Testament, hold that thought. Because if you haven't noticed... In your Bibles, this is where the New Testament begins. The New Testament makes up just over a quarter of your Bibles. So hearing that the word holy is used 600 and some odd times in the Old Testament, 
and 200 some odd times in the New Testament should not make you think, oh, God was concerned about holiness and now he no longer really is all that much. Maybe some, but not really. Because it's actually found that the the word holy in its derivatives and its various forms is sprinkled all throughout the scriptures of God. In the Old Testament, what is God looking for? He's looking for a holy people. In the New Testament, what is God looking for? He's looking for a holy people. We'll look in just a moment at what it means to be holy. But first, I want to look at a, a pretty important a pretty important question that comes up as a result of reading these two passages of Scripture this morning, the prophet Jeremiah chapter 31 and then the Gospel of Luke in chapter 22. And the question is, what's all this new, new covenant talk? The prophet Jeremiah said that the Word of God came to him and said that he was going to make a new covenant with Israel and Judah. A new covenant. Jesus, on the night that He was betrayed, when He lifted the cup and offered it to His disciples, He offered it specifically as, this is the new covenant in My blood, which is shed for you. New covenant. Very interesting. A couple of things that we could say about the New Covenant are that, number one, this New Covenant is what Jesus referred to to His disciples in the book of Acts, chapter 1, as the fulfillment of the promise of the Father. And it's interesting that all throughout the Gospels, the disciples are so clueless and so confused when Jesus is talking to them specifically about His work about what He was going to do. About His suffering in particular. Wait a minute. You mean the Messiah is going to suffer? Never, Lord. Not on our watch. God forbid it. They are so confused when He's talking to them about the cross, about about His passion which was to come. But in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, the disciples don't seem stunned at all. Oh, okay. What was that promise? The promise of the Father was that the Messiah would come not just to die for the sins of God's people, but so that through dying for them and rising to new life, He could then pour out His Holy Spirit. Because the new covenant is about God's Spirit living within us. It's about new life. The old covenant was about God's law out there before me on tablets of stone, cold and lifeless. Something that I can read, something that I can observe, something that I can trust God to help me be faithful to, but something that I find over and over again. There's something deep within me that pushes against it. There's something within me that is naturally and fundamentally rebellious to God's law. We want to keep it, but we can't. And we can't because deep down within us, we don't really want to. We want 
our way. We want what we want. And we want it now, and we want it always. And if God's way can somehow fulfill that desire, then okay, we've got something we can work with. But the new covenant that God promised through Jeremiah, and you see it again in Ezekiel chapter 36, you see is that God would take His law and write it on our hearts. Ezekiel says He is going to take our hearts of stone, which alludes to those stone tablets. He's going to take our stone hearts out and put hearts of flesh within them. That He's going to give His Spirit to us. That He's going to give us new life and a new desire. He's going to recreate our hearts. He's going to fundamentally change who we are at the core of our being. There's something else that fundamentally changes us to the core of our being. I wish I had the guts, Jeremy, to use my uh, marriage joke. That's my way of getting marriage out there. <laughs> marriage, some of you know Princess Bride. Uh, marriage is something that does fundamentally change us. And it's interesting that, that God refers to Himself through the prophet Jeremiah as a husband to Israel. Think about what He said. He said that this new covenant is not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke though I was their husband. The prophet Hosea is going to pick up on that theme and talk about how unfaithful Israel has been been to her covenantal husband. I'm not Jewish myself, and I don't know very much about Jewish tradition, but one of the things that I've gathered in my study is that One of the Jewish traditions around nuptials, around betrothals, around marriage, is that when a a bridegroom had decided the lady that he would like to marry, this is at the time of Christ, he would approach her father and would begin negotiating. You know, how many cows she's going to be worth, how many goats he's going to give, all that sort of stuff. Stuff that seems very off-putting to us. But they would negotiate the dowry. And once they had settled upon the arrangement, one of the things that the bridegroom, the prospective husband, would do is he would offer a, a ceremonial and a celebratory cup of wine to the one that would be his fiancée. And he would say, this is the covenant of my blood. Essentially offering his life to her. And it's upon her to then receive it or reject it. When Jesus lifts the cup at Passover and says, this is the new covenant of my blood which is shed for you, I imagine the disciples probably got a bit uncomfortable. That was proposal type language. What 
God offers to us in His Son Jesus, in the cross of Christ, is not just our ticket to heaven after life. What He offers to us is not just life after death. What He offers us is a new life. A life lived in holiness. The writer to the Hebrews in the New Testament epistle says, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people, that is, to make the people holy through His own blood. Let us therefore go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach He endured. According to the writer to the Hebrews, Jesus did not die fundamentally just to get us into heaven. He died, He shed His blood to make us holy. Paul, to the Ephesians, said Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, that is, to make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Paul is talking in the context of marriage when he makes that statement. According to the New Testament, Jesus died not just to get us into heaven. He died to make us holy. The purpose of His death was not just eternity with Him. More importantly, the purpose of His death was to get heaven into you. To get heaven into me. Why? Because you and I are to be His temple. And a temple must be a holy place. If God is to reside within His temple, He must cleanse it. And further, and more intimately than that, He died to make us holy because you are to be His bride. And He wants you to be exclusively His. Which brings up the question, okay, what does it mean to be holy? In the ancient world and in the world today, to be holy is fundamentally to belong to God, to be His. To be entirely His and to be exclusively His. Your paper plates are not your holy plates the fine china that you keep locked up that only gets brought out when the good guests and the guests that know how to behave themselves show up. It's those plates that are the holy plates. 
To be holy means to belong entirely to God and to belong exclusively to God. To be holy is necessarily to not be common. But to be holy means something more than that. It means also to be different. Because something that is holy cannot be common and therefore it cannot be ordinary. It cannot be just like any other thing. To be holy means to belong only to God and completely to Him. And because of that, to be holy means to live differently, to be used differently. That's why the New Testament calls us a peculiar people. Peter's not making fun of you or making a dig at you. He's saying that to be God's holy people is fundamentally to be different. That's why Jesus calls His disciples the light of the world. Because light is not like darkness. It's something other. Notice in the disciples, their conversation. As Jesus lifts that cup and says, This is the new covenant of My blood which is shed for you. And the disciples kind of get over their awkwardness of, oh wow, this is weird. Notice how quickly the conversation turns. Jesus says, Woe to the one who betrays me, because the one who will betray me is at the table with me. His hand is on this table with me. And immediately the disciples begin talking amongst themselves, who would be the betrayer? And within moments, their conversation goes from, Could it be me? Who is it? Is it you? Which one of us is it? Within moments, that conversation turns from who is the betrayer to who is the best. It couldn't be me. I'm more faithful to Him than you are. It's got to be that one. He's the one that's least of us. Very interesting how quickly the conversation turns. You see, this is carnal Christianity at its finest. The fact is that the capacity for betrayal lies within the hearts of each one of us. And that's why Jesus wants to give you a new heart. A heart that is completely His. That is only His. What does hell look like? Hell looks like self. The Latin phrase, cor incurvatus, I'd say, a heart closed in on itself. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis is talking about taking a trip to heaven, deciding whether to stay there, and he meets one of his heroes, George MacDonald, a Scottish Presbyterian pastor. And George MacDonald tells him the motto of hell is leave me to myself. There's nothing more isolated than hell. And there's nothing more isolating than sin. C.S. Lewis also said that 
in the end, there are only two types of people. Those who look to God and say, Thy will be done. And those to whom God will unfortunately look and say, Thy will be done. You know that a few weeks ago I was in Haiti teaching. And a couple of the questions that I'm often asked is, what were you doing and also why? I think the why comes out of the what were you doing. What was I doing? Of course, I was teaching. But specifically, I was teaching a course titled uh, The Biblical Doctrine of Holiness. Why would I be teaching that in Haiti? Only the gospel of Christ has the power to transform a culture. Only the life-giving and life-changing holy character of God in His people and among His people can bring about the end of things like the slave trade in Britain. Only this life-giving and life-changing gospel will renew a dark and sinful place like Haiti. And only it can transform the culture in which we live. Because if you haven't noticed, this culture is dark. We flip on the neon lights and we flip on a lot of things to try to make our culture look appealing and fun and exciting and bright and life-giving. Obviously, growing up in Mississippi, sorry Jeremy, I'm a Saints fan. And yeah, it's Super Bowl Sunday and I'm a bit disappointed my team's not playing in there. One of the things that's so sobering about an event like the Super Bowl, and this is not a statement about football, this is not a statement about sports at all, but the inter- one of the interesting things about the Super Bowl is Super Bowl weekend becomes the busiest weekend of human trafficking. It has been for years. Because people with money have money to spend on things that they find fun. Interestingly also, Atlanta is one of the world's leading hubs of human trafficking. It's one of the reasons why the coffee we brew out at the table is daily grind coffee. Because every time we buy a bag of that coffee, a dollar goes to fight human trafficking in Atlanta. It's easy when the game's on and the sound's working right and the teams have their helmets all polished up and Fireworks are going off. It's easy to think that our culture is something that's bright and beautiful and filled with life and filled with abundance. 
But we live in a culture that celebrates broken sexuality, that celebrates death, that celebrates self-indulgent with no limits, that celebrates entertainment, no matter the cost. Jesus died for that, to change that, to redeem that, to take what is broken and dark and fill it with light and life. He died to make you holy. He died to make me holy. He died to make the church holy. And only as we live in the fullness of what He offers to us through His sacrifice on the cross, only then does the world have any hope. Pursue holiness without which no one, that's not just you, but no one watching you, without which no one will see the kingdom. How will the world be saved? By holy men and holy women living entirely and exclusively for God. These next three weeks, we'll be looking at specifically what is holiness? What does it look like to be God's holy people in our lives? We'll be very, hopefully very practical. Hopefully, um, you're tantalized a little bit and you'll come back for more. George MacDonald, who I referenced earlier, he also said, God is easily, easily pleased, but hardly satisfied. The fact is that God won't stop on you. He won't settle for less than the best for you. So don't you dare stop. And don't you dare settle for anything less than His best. Father, we pray that You would help us, help us to respond to Your invitation to Your call to be holy, Your call to be completely Yours, Your call to live like You. Lord, we know that in and of ourselves, we are not holy. In and of ourselves and apart from Your grace, we are enemies of You. We fight against what You want to do in our lives. So Lord, we pray that You would break our wills. That You would give us new hearts. That You would take out of us that spirit that fights against You. That spirit that clings to self and put within us and release throughout us Your Holy Spirit. We pray that as we prepare to receive the elements of communion, that You would prepare our hearts knowing full well that Jesus died not just to get us to heaven. He died to make us holy. So Lord, as we prepare to approach this table, we pray that You would prepare us and give us a resolve to be Your holy people. 
completely and only. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Father Almighty, Creator and Sustainer of all things, who sent Your only begotten Son to redeem all things, You made us in Your image. You made us to know You and love You. You made us to be known by You and loved by You. You made us to live how You live. Please make us holy. Bring us to the place of complete and utter surrender to Your will and to Your way. Give us pure love. Perfect our hearts. Transform our lives. Father, You made us for Yourself and You are the One for whom our hearts desperately long. You are our joy and our peace. You love us unfailingly. Help us to love You unwaveringly. Your goodness toward us is never wanting and Your mercy is new each morning. Thank You for loving us so passionately and so perfectly. As we gather as Your people this morning and worship You in the name of Jesus, thank You for being with us and for ministering to us by Your Holy Spirit. Thank You for feeding us at Your holy table. Thank You, Jesus, for giving Your precious life for us. Holy Spirit, have Your way in our lives. Consume us with the holy love of God. Lord, we want to know You more fully and we want to love You more completely. Father, Son, and Spirit, You are holy, You are faithful, and You are good. Lord, You know each need that we have. You know those things for which we cry out in thanksgiving. Lord, help us to trust You in every part of our lives, in everything that we have going on. Help us to have faith in You. Lord, we pray for our church as we approach an annual meeting next week that You would give us wisdom, that You would guide us, that You would do great things through us. Lord, we want to grow Your kingdom. We want to offer Your life-giving grace to others because we've found in You such joy and such love and such peace and such hope. Lord, help us. We pray for our association that You would be with them as they prepare to plant a church in Athens, Alabama. Lord, we pray that You would continue to prepare the ground there, that You would continue to call those who will be a part of that mission. Lord, we pray that You would raise up planter, that You would put upon the heart of one who could go and plant to be a part of that work, to pastor that community. Lord, we lift up David to You as he prepares for a surgery on his knee this coming Wednesday, that You would be with him. We thank You for this opportunity for healing and we pray that You would help him as he uh, prepares, help him as he recovers to recover well and completely and quickly. Lord, we lift up Miss Margie and Miss Davies and all the ladies that we serve through Meals on Wheels. We lift up to You the kids at Devereaux that we've been serving for these last several months. 
We pray that you would help us to be even more than we are now a means of grace in the lives of others who are hurting and lonely in our community. Help us, Lord. Almighty and everlasting God, You govern all things both in heaven and on earth. In Your mercy, please hear our prayers and give us Your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with You and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever we pray. Amen. And may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Go in the blessed grace of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Please check out our website at faithmethodistchurch.org.